Amen. 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 Grace. I love it. I want it. I need it. I want some more of it. Man, I'm serious. I love it. I need it. And I want, I got to have, I got to have some more of it. I, I, I got to be, I'm unapologetically in a pursuit of becoming absolutely obsessed and wrecked by grace. Nothing like it. Nothing goes down sweeter than grace. Uh, now today we conclude our study of 1 Peter and all I can say is, wow, what an amazing letter and what an incredible journey we've been on the last few months. Uh, this series has been incredible. Somebody gave me a high five during the week setting up for VBS saying, man, Steve, this series has rocked my world. And it's God's word. That's why it does those things. And, and, and listen, one thing that, that stuck out to me this week as I reflected back on these God-breathed words written by a a guy who literally hung out with Jesus for three years, a, a, a guy who saw God when God had a body. Uh, he, he saw God, the creator of the universe in the flesh. That's crazy. Uh, the thing that struck out to me is that Peter, that he both, he both begins and ends his, letters, his letter with grace on his mind and with grace flowing from his pen. He writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the God's elect, exile scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, as we said several weeks back, Charlottesville, Rutgersville, Barbersville, Hooverville, right, everywhere. And what, what does he want to say to us, right? Yeah, and the reason I say Rutgersville and all that is, right, because we can tell we don't even Okay, he's not talking to us, right? I don't live in Cappadocia. No, he is talking to you as God's children. What does he want to say to us? He wants to say to us who have been chosen according to foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to, the, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, He's giving us new birth into a, to a living hope and, and, and to, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And do you know how, how, how we spell new birth, a living hope, and inheritance and salvation, G-R-A-C-E, grace, unbelievable, unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor with God. And then Peter continues on, on, this, on, on this grace um, saturation, this grace onslaught. He says, though, though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, Peter said, you know what, it is, and I got to tell you, I agree with Peter, our, our salvation, it, it's so much bigger, it's so much bolder, it's so much deeper than we could ever imagine. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets, Isaiah being one of them, 
who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, search intently with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. They, they wouldn't get in on it, but we would. When they spoke of the things that had now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Guys, our salvation, you know, the salvation we have, the salvation we live in, the grace we get to experience every single day would blow the minds and is blowing the minds of angels and the prophets of old. And then Peter ends his letter with these words. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, is chapter 5. And after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. I've written to you briefly, encourage you, and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Stand fast in grace. Yet Peter, he both began and he ends his letter with grace. And for obvious reasons, I think that Peter really was into grace. I mean, he experienced it firsthand, right? You see, grace found Peter just like it finds us just when Peter needed it the most, when he fell, when he failed, when he faltered. And understand, we don't find grace. Grace finds us. And Peter's fishing buddy John said this about grace to the, in the opening chapter of his gospel and about its ultimate source. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who comes from the father full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we've received grace in place of the grace already given, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When Jesus walked this earth in the flesh, he was full of what? Full of grace and full of truth. And listen, Jesus not only was full of grace and truth when he walked this earth, but he unleashed grace and truth onto a dark and broken world that needed it so much. Yes, grace was on Peter's mind as he both began and ended this letter. And this week, as I reflected on those last 14 verses that he penned, it, it hit me that, that Peter, in, in, in these closing words, is encouraging, is challenging, is, in, is, is exhorting and calling the church then and now to walk in Jesus' steps so that we can unleash his grace in our lives and through our lives out into the world that he loves so much. Question, does anyone in this room want to see God's grace unleashed in and through your lives like never before? Anybody want to see that? Amen. I want to see that. I mean, it's bigger and bolder and deeper than we could imagine. And does anybody want to see his grace unleashed in and through Maple Grove? Amen. We all... That's why we're here, right? Then Peter says, okay, sweet, awesome, let's do this. He says, okay, there's eight steps we got to take to make this happen, y'all. Y'all. And first he says, we need to, and, and the first few of review, I love review. Get over it if you don't like review, all right? 
step up. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who was also will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And again, what God is saying to us today through Peter is that the leadership at Maple Grove needs to step up. Why? Because everything rises and falls on leadership. Why? Because if the Grove is ever going to become the church that God has always intended her to be, a place full of Jesus followers who are living in, who are living in and dispensing out God's grace, her leaders, we must be out in front leading the way. We must step up. Why? Because the local church is the hope of this dark and depraved world, and its future rests primarily in the hands of its leaders. Yes, from a human perspective, the outcome of the redemptive drama being played out on planet Earth will be determined by how well church leaders lead. We must step up. Why? Because when leaders step up, and do what God has called and gifted them to do, the, the forces of darkness will be pushed back. The evil one who's had his way too long in this world will be forced to give up ground, and the church will fulfill the redemptive purpose for which Christ called her into being. Leaders, we must step up. Elders, staff, life group leaders, all leaders, we need to step up. And then the people need to step with. In the same way you are younger, submit yourself to your elders. In other words, for the church to move forward, it not only must have good leaders, but it must have good what? Followers, right? All great leaders had great followers. I showed pictures last week. I'm just going to chunk one on the screen this week of this orchestra leader dude, right? You know, Leonard Bernstein, right? He said, I love this. I'm not interested in having an orchestra sound like itself. I wanted to sound like what? It's composer. And Maple Grove... Uh, I'm not interested uh, of having this church look like me or you. I, I want it to look like Jesus. Amen? And, and, and why is stepping up and stepping with so critical right now? Because we're a defining moment in our church's history, right? We really are. You know, uh, we have these core values. We're rolling out a strategic plan on October the 12th, right? And, 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 and we, wanna, we don't want that just to be a T-shirt, Right? A banner. We want it to be lived out in our lives. And remember, stepping up and stepping with is not about us. Instead, it's about Jesus. Like Henry Ford said, a great leader, he said, if I, if I gave the people what they wanted, I would have given them what? Faster horses, right? All right, you know? No, we don't need faster horses, right, as a church. We need something different. And God's got to take us there. And stepping up and with is about unleashing God's grace. Leaders, we need to step up. Everyone else needs to step with. If we're going to live in and dispense out God's grace in new and radical ways, then we also need to step down. All of you close yourself in humility toward one another because God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. That's a pretty good thing to do, right? You know, like in the face of God, it's like, you know, I'm going to be proud under God's mighty hand. You know, no, 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 I think I'll just... I think I'll humble myself right here where I am. 
that he may lift you up in due time. You see, if we're ever going to live such good lives, if we're going to unleash grace and truth, we must step down. We must all, all leaders and people clothe ourselves with humility towards you, towards one another, even towards that irritating person, right? You know what I'm talking about? Maybe standing up here right now. <laughs> yeah. Maybe sitting out there <laughs> towards one another. And notice Peter says, clothe yourself, humble yourself. Understand humility is something, humility is something we do. It's not, not just a way of thinking, it's a way of acting. And listen, in our dark, broken, have it my way, it's all about me, world. Humility is a really hard thing to do. All of you. That means the person to your right and to your left and the person who you saw in the mirror this morning, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Not some vague concept out there, but toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, in God's mighty hand that he may lift you up. But what is, he, what is humility? I mean, how can we put it on if we don't know what it is, right? C.S. Lewis said humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? That's good. He's a smart guy. You see, humility is not to be self-centered but other-centered. Humility is not about convincing ourselves or others that we are unattractive or incompetent. It's, it's not about beating ourselves up and making ourselves nothing. That's not humility. And, and I think it really helps in understanding what humility is, is to compare humility with its evil twin brother, pride. Because humility is the opposite of pride. John Stott wrote this really, really powerful words. At every stage of our Christian development, and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest what? Enemy. And humility, our greatest friend. And so here are seven comparisons between pride and humility that will help us understand what each are so we can be making the right friendship, right? Making the friend with humility. Number one, pride is a tendency to compare ourselves to other people, usually people who are less than us. Humility is to continually compare us to compare ourselves to Christ. Oh, okay, I guess I can't breathe out stars. Number two, pride covets the success of other people. When they succeed, we become jealous. Understand, pride is the number one reason we criticize other people when they succeed. Humility, this is hard sometimes, right, celebrates the success of other people. I mean, some of you anti-Patriots fans will need to celebrate the success of the Patriots to show humility when we win the Super Bowl this year, right? Uh, just kidding. <laughs> and number three, pride is all about me, promoting me, protecting me, thinking the world constantly revolves around me and is all about and all for me. Is that my church in the bad way? Humility is all about a healthy self-forgetfulness, uh, Realization, the world does not revolve and is not about me. Humility is, is not only about other people, but it's a freedom to stop trying to be what you're not or pretending to be what you're not. Humility, as one, as one writer says, humility is accepting our appropriate smallness. Four, pride is about my glory. You know who I am? You know what I've done? Do you respect me, honor me, like me, pay attention to me, notice me, want to be like me? 
Humility is about Jesus. Do you respect Jesus, like Jesus, honor Jesus, pay attention to Jesus, notice Jesus? Do you want to be like Jesus? Pride leads to arrogance, cockiness, smugness, and it's repugnant. That means distasteful, objectionable, or offensive. Humility leads to confidence. I won't deny my convictions. I won't disagree with Scripture. I won't dishonor Jesus. I'm confident what is right, what is wrong, what is true or false, and who God is and who he created me to be, but it's not arrogance, it's confidence. It's journeying through life with a confidence in God and who we are in him. Number six, pride. The point of pride is independence. We see this in Satan, the first couple, Adam and Eve, the prodigal son, and we see it in our own lives as we choose to do what we want to do and go our own way. Humility is all about dependence on God. We are created. He is creator. We depend on him for love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, compassion, instruction, correction, protection, provision, and help. Number seven, pride is something we can achieve in life, right? We can do it. Sometimes we get pretty good at it. Humility is something we must continually chase after. See, no one can say, I am proud to report that I am humble. All right, just... And the bottom line, humility is Jesus. And we're to walk in the steps, Peter says. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And, and Paul's point in, in, in those verses that nothing builds a church or relationship stronger and sure than humility, and that nothing breaks and destroys them more certainly than pride. I've seen it, you've seen it, and God hates it. And Paul continues, your attitude, Steve, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. He, being a very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearances of man, he humbled himself and became obedient even death on the, to death, even death on a cross. Now, Paul's point in those verses is that there's nobody as humble as Jesus. I mean, really think about it. I mean, I mean, take this concept of Jesus coming in the flesh. I mean, take it off the flannel board, right? And take it out of the box of your current understanding. God, the one who breathes out stars, who's always been and always will be, the unlimited, I hold the oceans in the palm of my hands. I can't even hold an ounce of water. Put on flesh. Made himself nothing. He gave up his rights. He died on the cross. That is insane. That is crazy. And that is stepping down. I mean, that is stepping way down. Nobody has and nobody can step further down than Jesus. He's humble, and he's to be our example. He's to be what we are to do and strive after our goal. And Paul concludes, therefore, because he stepped down, it's kind of like Peter says, if we humble ourselves, God will lift us up too, right? 
Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Now, he won't exalt us. He won't lift us that high, all right? Sorry. <laughs> to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And Paul's point in those verses is that the name of Jesus is the most important thing. The name of Je- ultimately, the name of Jesus is, is all that matters. Not my name, not your name, not Maple Grove's name. The name of Jesus is what matters. And, and, and therefore, the, the only right question for you and I to ask in any given situation is this. What will exalt the name of Jesus? What will lift him up? What will make him look good? Because he is good. Amen? And, and listen, since humility, like love is a choice, it's something we can learn. It's something that we can practice, Right? I mean, remember the first time you rode a bike? Didn't go so well, right? I remember the first time I used a buffer, you know, in the barracks in Great Lakes, Illinois. Oh, my goodness. It looked so easy, right? I mean, guys are smoking cigarettes, and using one finger. I grabbed that sucker. Boom, 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 all the way down the hallway. It's like, this is nuts, right? It's crazy. How do you? But pretty soon, I'm, and riding it, we would have contests with it. So we can practice, we can do some things that'll help us be humble. And here's just some things, they're gonna flash up real quick on the screen. Practice giving up your rights. Practice learning from others. Uh, John Wooding, I'm reading a book he wrote on leadership, says, it's what we learn after we know everything that counts. Amen, John Wooding. Practice admitting you're wrong without making excuses or justification. Practice listening more than speaking. Practice letting someone else go first or get the credit rather than you. Or maybe you take the blame rather than them have the blame. Practice washing feet in secret. Practice serving in Jesus' name and don't let anybody ever find out about it. Next, we must step away. Give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about what happens to you. See, to live God's way, to to walk in and unleash grace, we must step away from worry. You see, we cannot live in God's grace and in worry at the same time. Understand, and I'm talking to me, just as much as I'm talking to you, understand there is no place for worry in God's kingdom and among God's people. You see, worry, worry will pull you in, chew you up, chew you up some more, spit you out, pull you in, chew you up some more, chew you up and chew you up and chew you up and chew you up, and we need to step away from it. And be honest, it's not always so easy to do, is it? And recently, in my own life, rather than stepping away from worry, I've been stepping into it. And it's not been a whole lot of fun. You see, I, I found myself worrying about all the things that, that must happen at the Grove in order for God to move her forward to become everything that she wants to be. And I got to thinking that maybe it's all on me. And I got to figure it out. And I got to make it happen. And God reminded me this week of something I've forgotten. Who God is. And it's not me. He, he reminded me that I do not carry 
the weight of the world on my shoulders. He reminded me that everything does not hinge on me. He reminded me that he does not need me, though he wouldn't mind using me, but he does not need me to accomplish his will. His will will be done. He reminded me that I am little, (laughs) itsy-bitsy, and that it's okay because God is so big, and I can trust him. What are you worried and anxious about? What wakes you up and keeps you up throughout the night? When has worrying ever done you any good? Again, did, you know, did Jesus ever worry? I mean, we're walking in the steps. He never worried about anything. Why? Because he trusted God. Why? Because he knew that God's promises and God's purposes and God's plan were certain and sure. Give all, yeah, that one too. Yeah, that one. Give all your, yeah, that one. Yeah, I know you think God can't handle it, right? He's like, God, I know you can handle this, but this is just. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares. Wow. He cares about what happens to you. Is that nuts? The star-breathing God, he cares. We read, if you were in it, right, you read Exodus 3 this week about God's people being in bondage. And God tells Moses, I see and I care. I hear their cries, I see their suffering, and I'm going to come down and rescue them and lead them out of bondage and lead them into something better. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about what happens to you. Don't worry about anything, Paul writes. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. You know, you know what a... You know, a natural reflex would be you touch a hot stove, what do you do? Boom. You know, um, a conditional reflex is something you learn, right? Like, I mean, you weren't born with the knowledge when the light turns red, you hit the gas pedal, right? You weren't born with that. <laughs> Unless there's a camera at Rio Road and you better not do it because you're going to take it. I got hit there twice, okay? <laughs> Thinking. And it show you the video. It's like, seriously, I did that? Wow, I was like in the next county when I ran that sucker, right? Okay, uh, but you, know, you can learn, right? Hey, a conditioned reflex, you learn. Okay, star spangle, you know, you're at a baseball game, right? They start playing the national anthem, right? You have a hat on, what do you do? You take it off when you're in your heart, right? You learn that. And see, so we can learn to say, hey, when, you know, try it this, just this week, you know, or maybe just today or just the next two seconds, right? <laughs> the minute you worry, the minute we worry, why don't we turn that into a conditional reflex? Well, I'm starting to worry. I'm going to pray. I'm not, you know what? This week, I'm not going to worry about that relationship. I'm going to pray about it. Uh, this week, I'm not going to worry about that, that bad report. I'm going to pray about it. Uh, this week, I'm not going to worry about the challenge in front of me. I'm just going to pray about it, and maybe we'll see how that works out. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 6. You can read it this week. Uh, um, I think I can read it if I give no commentary. So I tell you, this is God in the flesh. He wants to tell you this this morning. Don't worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food, drink, and clothes. Doesn't life consist more than, of more than food and clothing? Look at the birds. They, they don't need to plant or harvest or put food in barns because your heavenly Father feeds them. And you are far more valuable to him than they are. Can can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Of course not. 
And why worry about your clothes? Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon, all his glory, was not dressed as beautiful as they are. I mean, you see the flowers walk in in this place this morning? Wow. And if God cares so wonderfully for the flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, won't he more surely care for you? You have so little faith. So don't worry about having enough food or drink or clothing. Well, why be like the pagans who are so deeply concerned about these things? Your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. And he'll give you all you need from day to day if you live for him. And you make the kingdom of God your primary concern. Maybe that's why Jesus didn't worry. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. We need to step away. We need to step against Be careful. Watch out for attacks from the devil, your great enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for some victim to devour. Take a firm stand against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your Christian brothers and sisters all over the world are going through the same kind of suffering you are. We got to pray again. Our brothers and sisters are getting really hurt in Iraq. And if you're here about a year ago, we watched that Love Cost Everything where they interviewed the pastor from one of the pastors from a church in, in Baghdad, and, and, you know, he posted recently that one of the children that was dedicated, uh, a five-year-old, was cut in half recently. And see, I, Christ even reported that that pastor is now missing. You know, and so as we sit in this room worshiping freedom, you know, we have brothers and sisters or not, so let's just take a, a moment to pray for them. Father, I pray for our brothers and sisters in Iraq and other places who love you and are standing firm in you despite facing severe sufferings. And God, I pray that you would give them boldness. I pray, God, that they will feel your presence. I pray, God, that just as Stephen looked up amongst his persecutors and saw the Son of Man in the clouds, God, rising to meet him, support him, to welcome him. I pray they see the same thing. I pray their faith does not falter. Be with those moms and dads and those sons and daughters, those brothers and sisters and friends, coworkers, church members, who right at this very moment are facing something we could not even imagine. And God, be with them, and, and may their courage, God, inspire us and to rise above our indifference and apathy and serve you more passionately than ever before, and to take advantage of the freedom that we have to spread your gospel and make a difference not just in our world, but in theirs as well. In Jesus' name, amen. As Peter concludes this letter, he reminds the readers of the fact that they face a very real and a very powerful enemy, an enemy who holds nothing back in his effort to keep us from walking in and unleashing God's grace into this dark world. And did you see how Peter describes that enemy? He says, the enemy is like a what? A roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Here's a quick video of what that looks like. Their enemy doesn't just want to hurt us. He wants to devour and destroy us. He doesn't want to take us to dinner. He wants us to be his dinner. And you know, Peter says, we're not to ignore this enemy, that we're to actually stand firm against him. And the question is, how do we stand against an enemy that is more powerful than we are? Answer, this is quick but good. Answer number one, by having a greater power with you. And guess what? We do. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. 
How do we stand against such a powerful enemy? Number two, by staying out of his jungle. <laughs> Solomon writes, uh, yeah, don't do as the wicked do and don't follow the path of, of what evil does. Don't even think about it. Don't go that way. Turn away and keep moving, right? He said, don't even go there. Don't follow that path. Uh, number three, how do we stand against us a strong enemy? By using the right weapons. By using divine weapons that Paul talks about that demolish strongholds. And, and what are some divine weapons we have? Against that, I mean, that's me, right? And you, I mean, that's just not, that's not a good day, right? Ah! I mean, that's not a good day. When you turn around, there's a lion coming at you. That is not a good day. Prayer is a divine weapon. And by the way, next Saturday, 6 p.m., is our next before the throne. Uh, we claim it's our number two core value. It's time for us to step up and prove it by joining together in prayer against this enemy who wants to devour us individually. And next Saturday, 6 p.m., Youth Center, the Word of God is a weapon, you know? And let me be that burn your butt again, right? You know, FCFH. You know, I, 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 I'm praying that hundreds of people in this church will be reading the same things. Well, Isaiah, man, God, you're huge. Oh, Moses, I kind of feel like you, God. I, I can't do what you want to do, but if you're going to be with me, I guess I can do it. Oh, my tongue really gets me in trouble. Maybe I shouldn't be speaking my tongue. Oh, I used to be dead, but now grace has saved me. I mean, we got to read all that this week. The attitude of Christ is a divine weapon. The attitude of selflessness. And our faith is a weapon. How do we stand against them? By not fighting alone. Ecclesiastes, an enemy might defeat one person, but two people together can defeat, can defend themselves. Right? That, that poor little, little hyena, right? Then it's all by himself. You, you, you get a bunch of them, maybe they got a better chance, or maybe you can at least run faster than the other one, right? And you'll be all right. A rope that is woven of three strings is hard to break. Step up, step with, step down, step away, step again, step towards. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you suffer a little while, Will self-restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast to him. Be power forever and ever. Amen. See, God called you to his eternal glory. But I'm saying, he did not call you to his eternal glory here on this earth. As we saw a few weeks back in our message, The Beautiful Letdown, we don't belong here. Instead, we're headed to someplace else. We're headed to our true home. We're headed to heaven. We're headed to our perfect world. We're headed to our perfect forever. It's true. Uh, we're headed to, to a world without pain, to a world without sorrow, to a world without grief, to a world without divorce, to a world without death, to a world without disease. And we're headed to a world with the presence of God as an everyday, every moment reality. Are you kidding me? But we're not there yet. Someday, but not now. And until then, to live God's way and to live in his grace and dispense his grace out in the world, we have to step towards our future. We have to keep reminding ourselves and filling our thoughts with heaven. Since you've been raised to a new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Where Christ sits at God's right hand in the place of honor and power. Let heaven fill your thoughts. Don't only think about things down here on earth that just bum you out and depress you. 
For you died when Christ died and your real life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your real life, is revealed to the whole world, you'll share in all his glory. This is real, it's reality. Uh, this week I was sitting around the table on Friday uh, with Sam and Madeline Sharp. You know, and, and uh, they're a beautiful picture of a marital commitment and, and, and a faith in God. And you'll see in the second service, I mean, she has a, a very debilitating disease and you know, can, can no longer talk and she's in the wheelchair and we're sitting there having a conversation and Madeline would smile every now and then, you know, but they clearly are saying, you know what, we have placed our hopes not here. Yeah, our, our hope is where Madeline is going. Yeah, our hope is where I am going. And just sitting at the table, people living in that reality, knowing that, hey, no, 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 no. We're stepping toward Reminding ourselves of where we are going. As Peter wraps up this letter, man, he fires off a bunch of stuff. He says, you know, to dispense God's grace and live in God's grace, to become the church he wants us to be, leaders must step up, the people must step with, and we all must step down, step away, step against, step towards our future, and we must step together. Peter, when Peter concludes, he he talks about Silas being with them and talks about how Mark is helpful to him. And when I looked at those last 14 verses, I began to see all the plural words, you know, elders, shepherds, flock, young men. Every time you see the word you, it's the, it's the plural. We can't see it in English, but it's the plural. It's y'all, right? Y'all. It, 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 30 times in 14 verses, there's a plural form. What Peter is saying is that the point is that Christianity is a life that's meant to be lived together. In fact, I would go so far as to say that Christianity is a life that we cannot live on our own. And those who try, many do, always fail and, and will never live the life they're created to live. We were created to do life together, you know. And I just say, are you stepping together? You know, are you in some kind of relationship with other believer, believers in a, in a life group, in some kind of small group? I mean, are you stepping together with other believers? If not, ask God what he would like you to do. And finally, this is the one I'm just like, I love. I love them all, but we need to step on. The God of all grace who called you to eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast to him. Be power forever and ever. Amen. I've written to you briefly, encourage you, and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. You see, what we stand on, what we, what we hold on to, what we stand fast in, what holds us up, the core, the foundation of the entire thing, the only reason that we have an opportunity to live God's way and become the people God created us to be is by his grace. He says, stand fast in grace. He, he, he didn't tell us to stand by grace. He told us to stand in grace. And, and that, that word in is like a really powerful word. And, and about four years ago, I, I was doing a one-word study of Psalm 23. It took me like a month, two months, and, you know, Lord's my shepherd, he, he, makes, he, he lets me rest in. And this day, I started the word in. And here's what I wrote. Because in, in is like a big deal. In. Okay, what does this small two-letter word, I think it's a preposition maybe, don't really know, but regardless. Big key, my shepherd, I'm listening. 
I, I put the coffee on as coffee is always there. I as I reflected on this. Okay, this huge he, my shepherd, lets me rest in. I'm in, no longer out. I'm not just really close to it. I'm not just at the edge of it. No, I'm in. I'm in it. I'm covered. I'm surrounded. I'm immersed. I'm experiencing it. I was thinking about this in as I make my coffee in the kitchen. And I could not help but think about Ariel, the fish, not the mermaid. There should be a picture right here, maybe. Yeah, okay, it's kind of blurry. That's not really the real Ariel, but my, my daughter had a fish, a beta fish. For whatever reason, Ariel made a decision to no longer be in the water. <laughs> and she jumped out, fell on the floor, and found that being close was simply not good enough for her. <laughs> Lord, you never intended for me to survive by simply being close to or near to trust, and near to grace. No, your plan, your intention is for me to be in rest, in trust, in grace. You let me rest in. You let me trust in. You let me stand in grace. This is my water. Lord, I have to admit that too many times I am too much like Ariel. I choose to leave, to jump out of in, to try to live and survive by just being kind of close to in. But it does not and has not worked out so well. In fact, the small, dried-up, dead beta fish is a vivid and dramatic picture of a life that is not in. Today, I need to make a decision to live in, not around, not kind of close, not nearby, but in. Sure, close may be okay in horseshoes and hair grenades, but it does not work in rest, in trust, and in grace. How crazy for me to choose to live around, to be kind of close instead of in. Okay, Lord, in was a really cool and huge word. In fact, it's so huge that I need to stop right there with that one word and think about it all day, asking myself if I'm living in or out of the bowl. Some of you need to live in grace and in his acceptance as a believer and be immersed in it. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourself. It's a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. You see, grace is not just amazing. Grace is crazy amazing. It's crazy amazing. Grace means that in Christ, all our efforts to win God's approval are unnecessary, and that all our fears of losing his approval are needless. Amen? We can no more make God want us than we can convince him to abandon us. We are saved and we are being saved by grace. I love grace. I need grace. I want grace. I want to be in submerged, drowning in grace. God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved, unbelievable favor. Paul writes, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit just as it has been doing, I love this, ever since the day you heard and understood grace and all its truth. Paul said, he said, grace and all its truth, not the swimming, not the outside the bowl truth. Not the looking at it from the distance truth, but the jumping in truth, knowing that you are saved by grace. 
that Jesus' blood has set you free, that you have been redeemed and rescued in Christ Jesus. We are saved by grace. Would you stand and pray with me? If you're here today and, you know, I think some of you, you know, we swim around it, don't we? It's like we have this check called grace and we haven't cashed it yet. We're just holding on to it. Well, it's not a gift until we cash it, right? Don't just hold on to it. I mean, jump into it and realize as messed up as you are, God still forgives you. His grace is enough. And maybe here today, you haven't fully jumped into his grace. Maybe you're today and, yeah, you believe in him and you want to follow him, but you're like Paul in Acts 22, 16. You know, and I say, hey, what are you waiting for? You haven't been baptized yet. You haven't been buried with Christ. You haven't been immersed into the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know, you need to do that today. That's part of his plan for bringing us into his family. You know, and again, if you need to do that, you come forward. The baptistry is always, is always warm, plus it's always okay this time of the year anyhow. You know, you can talk to me afterwards, but we want to sing about grace right now. A great and amazing grace. Let's sing. <laughs>